I want you to take your Bible and turn, please, to John chapter 2, either in print or digitally. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if you don't have your Bible with you, it's probably all memorized. So we, we are people of the book. It is my great privilege to be able to preach, as I said, we want to be praying for Pastor John and Linda as they are being refreshed and as he's studying and seeking God's will about his uh, preaching and his ministry coming up in the fall. But for seven weeks, I feel led to share in a series that I'm entitled, Whatever. Now, this is not like the teenage girl when you speak to her and you say to her, you need to clean up your room. And she says, whatever. (laughs) If you've been around middle schoolers, you know what I'm talking about. But whatever is a very significant principle in the Word of God. And particularly, it is based on our text today out of John 2. And each week there will be a a theme statement because the Lord is not limited. The Bible says in Psalms that Israel limited the Holy One of Israel. That word literally means they horizoned Him. They could not see beyond the whatever 22 miles or so we can see over on the horizon. But they, they decided in their hearts God could not do certain things. God says that he can do whatever he chooses with whomever he chooses. But the Christian must never put a limit on what we are willing to do for the Lord and with his word and his ministry. And so the key statement today is whatever Jesus commands, just do it. The Bible got that before Nike did. Just do it, whatever Jesus commands. Now, our context is a Jewish wedding. It was one of the most significant times in the life of an individual. Matter of fact, it was considered perhaps the ultimate time of joy for a Jewish couple. They were treated like kings and queens, even wearing a crown and robes. They were paraded the night of Uh, the beginning of the wedding feast all throughout the town in a circuitous route so everyone could see them. They had a canopy over their heads called a chuppah, and then there was a long feast. The honeymoon was one continual feast. And one of the most significant things was the provision of wine for the guests. And at this moment in our story, as Jesus is beginning his ministry, He does one of the most significant signs to begin his ministry that few even saw or understood. And we will talk about that. But the key is how Mary, his mother, responded in this situation. It could have been an incredibly embarrassing moment. Now, my my custom for many years has been to stand to honor the reading of God's inspired word. Would you do that and just listen if you do not have a Bible? I'm reading from the updated New American Standard Version. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, 
and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You may be seated. I must share an embarrassing moment with you that I've taken out of a secured safe in a vault in Area 51 that no one has probably ever heard of here in Naples, Florida. I fainted at my first wedding. I was a 17-year-old groomsman, and in Arizona, I had just mowed the yard. It was about 118 degrees. I dressed quickly, ran to the church, drove fast, fast, as my 58 Chevy would allow me. Got there. We did all the usual things I had on my black tuxedo along with the other pilgrims, uh, uh, penguins standing around in black tuxes. When all of a sudden, as the bride was coming down the aisle, I just passed out. Fell flat on the ground on the floor, and hardly no one noticed, of course. (laughs) Somehow the pastor's wife was sitting right there, and she uh, helped me to get on the seat. And then I realized everybody's up on the platform. So I got up. I I tried to make my stand there and be right there with the rest of the wedding party, and I fainted again. (laughs) It's a wonder I was ever asked to perform a wedding from that time on. But I've kept this secret all these years. It was a blood sugar issue, not having eaten, very hot, dehydration, and so forth. But a very embarrassing moment for me. The funny thing was, the groom and the bride hardly even noticed. But in this Cana situation, this dilemma could have been a disaster because it was considered the height of inhospitality to not have enough wine and refreshments available. Wine was a symbol of joy, according to the Psalms. It was also a picture of God's produce in the in the gov- in the. Uh, Uh, vineyards, but most of all, they were celebrating this wonderful occasion, and the wine ran out. But Mary came to Jesus, expecting him to do something, 
And he gave her a plan. And she went to the servants and said, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And that is one of the most significant principles in all of Scripture. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, first of all, whatever he says to you, do it because we are empty at best. God condemned Israel because he said in uh, Jeremiah 2.5, you have walked after emptiness and become empty. They ran out of wine. Lawsuits could be pending. We are empty in our joylessness. We are hard, hollow, empty water pots unless the joy of the Lord fills our heart. Now, some would think it's strange that Jesus was here at a wedding at the beginning of his ministry. He had just been through 40 days of hand-to-hand combat with the devil in the wilderness in serious temptations. They had been fasting, and suddenly uh, God released him from that. And what does he do? Not going into a fast, but to a feast. And his new disciples with him are invited to this wedding in Cana. Now, normally there's the greatest stress and strain when you are beginning a major project or you are about to accomplish your goals on the other end. And now at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is here, but he's not stressed. He's resting and celebrating. Even the night before his death, he says to his disciples, Blessed are you if you do these things that I am telling you to do. In John 13, 17. For many of us, life is not blessed. And the reason is because we do not do what he says to do. There is an emptiness that we see in so many different people today. They have walked after emptiness and become empty. A few years ago, uh, one of those times in the old days when the Dallas Cowboys would win Super Bowls, Bob Lilly, the great lineman for the Cowboys, when they won the Super Bowl, the biggest thing in sports, in a way, he's alone in the locker room sitting there, and he says, is this it? Is this what it's all about? There was a profound emptiness, he said, in his heart. And there are so many today that are absolutely empty, and particularly without joy. Joy is that flag that flies from our hearts, that indicates the king is in residence here, as the old psalms or the song says. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, This must be a sermon on alcohol. It is not. And I know that some of you are thinking, okay, was the water three parts water, one part wine? Uh, What's the difference between wine and strong drink or mixed drink? And the Bible refers to all of that. And I have an opinion. Uh, I have studied this matter. I'm not going to get into this because... If we get into this discussion of wine, you won't hear another thing I say today. (laughs) But it's hard to imagine that Jesus would give a serpent 
as a sign to a young couple. And the Bible does say, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. Whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. And the scripture says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's where the joy comes from. And all that the world looks for in drugs and booze and this and that is simply Satan's camouflaged imitation of real vital joy. But we're also empty in our neediness, as well as our joylessness as people. We have to admit we are bankrupt at best. We are absolutely without the Lord's touching, empty The wine has run out in every sense. But most of us don't realize it. We don't realize it until there are subtractions in our lives, and then we realize what really counts once we've seen those subtractions. When somehow God takes away this thing we found joy in and this thing that has met our needs, when then in all of a sudden, in a moment of crisis, we realize God, I'm poor and needy. That's the expression in the Old Testament. I am poor and needy. And that's why Jesus, in perhaps one of his strongest rebukes in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, was to the Laodiceans. You say, I am rich and wealthy and have need of nothing, but you are Wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, Jesus said in Revelation 4.17. Has your wine run out? Congratulations. You are on the brink of a miracle. But, secondly, whatever Jesus says to you, do it because Jesus knows best. Mary comes to Jesus and quite honestly You get the feeling she was a little pushy, maybe. A little pushy. What are you going to do about this, Jesus? And she wants a grand opening for his ministry. Boy, perfect timing. I'm your mom. I know best. Now's the time to show your messiahship. And Jesus makes a very interesting response to her. Woman. What does that have to do with us? The issue is us, not Jesus and Mary, but Jesus and the Heavenly Father. What does the Heavenly Father want to do? Not what do you think we should do? Now, for many years, people have read this and said, Oh my goodness, how disrespectful of Jesus to address her as woman. And yet, that was a sign of respect. He was recognizing, yes, she is a a person worthy of honor and listening to, but, but the Heavenly Father is the one that I must follow. And that's interesting because on the cross, Jesus even addressed her as woman in giving her into the care of his beloved disciple, John. But then there are others now, here we are, they want to cancel Jesus because he calls her woman. And yet he is seeing her with not only respect, but biological reality, biblical truth, and practical experience. She was a woman 
He was a man, no trans stuff involved here. Are you with me? In the beginning, God made them male and female, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. Well, that's another sermon, and we don't want to get into that even, either. But my, Mary wisely alerts the servants to do whatever Jesus says he knows best. She knew that uh, they might think it foolish that someone would say, fill these up with water. Or here's a total stranger telling us what to do. He's a guest. He's not even in the family. But Mary said he knows best. But here's the third point and main idea. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it because obedience is best. We don't like to talk about obedience. And yet the Word of God says that we're to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 10.5. Every thought, not just the worldly thoughts, not just the religious thoughts, not just the happy thoughts of the sad ones. Every thought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because first, obedience is directed to the Master Himself. Whatever He says. Now, it is human cooperation with God. I mean, this is significant. There were six stone water pots. They, they contained each about 20 to 30 gallons of water, and they were used for ritual purification before and after the meal. It was a significant point. But all throughout Judaism, God wanted them to recognize not just the issue of hygiene, but holiness. That we are dirty as we walk through this world. We need the cleansing of God. But Jesus is recognizing another aspect to his holiness, and that is his provision and his love. So he says to them, fill them totally to the brim with water. Jesus could have spoken as he did in other times, and that water could have suddenly become red with wine. Jesus could have just laid his hand on the pot and all of a sudden it was wine. But he chooses to use the servants to pour the water, to serve the wine, and Mary to direct it all. Because he uses us. He chooses to use you. He uses us to pray and cry out to him. He uses us to intercede for others. He uses us to give to missions and send missionaries and share the gospel. How shall they hear without a preacher, Paul said in Romans 10. He uses us to vote and be Christian citizens. He uses us to be salt and light in a messed up society. He even uses some of us to run for office. He uses us, and we cooperate with him. What a blessing. But also, it involves heartfelt attention to God's commands. He is the communicative Christ, the living word. The word, John 1 says. But then we have the written word. 
And it's not just the red letters that are inspired. It is all of the Word of God. It's all inerrant and inspired and infallible and authoritative. The red letters in some of your translations are the words of Jesus. But we hardly even listen to them, do we? But Jesus has spoken. Augustine, the old theologian years ago, said this, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Amen. When I open this book, God is giving His love letter to me. He is speaking to us. Old Mark Twain, the famous humorist author, said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me. They rock our world. They rock and ruin our status quo complacency. The Word speaks, and God always calls us to a a point of obedience to His Word. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Jesus said, and do not do the things that I say. Talk is cheap. Obedience is costly, but it's the best investment and the highest return on your investment. And then obedience is also involving heavenly affirmation of our value by God. Here is an ordinary couple in an ordinary little town For an ordinary wedding, with ordinary Jewish people, with ordinary water pots, but where Jesus does an extraordinary miracle. You see, the glory of God is manifested in the most ordinary of times. When two or three are gathered to pray, the glory is there. When we are praying on the phone for someone, or we are attending and worshiping with music. The glory of God is manifested. He inhabits the praises of His people, the psalmist said. His glory comes down into our ordinary lives, but we're just empty, hollow water pots that unfortunately are often hard, that need to be filled with the Spirit and His glory. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. But obedience is not only directed to the master, it is demonstrated by the servants. Because obedience is exclusive. Obedience is exclusive. There can be no selective obedience. I like this, I don't like this. No, whatever he says, whatever. You remember when Jesus was seeking to uh, Uh, bring Peter's understanding into a worldwide vision for missions to the Gentiles. Peter was up on a rooftop uh, near the sea and was, uh, I guess, sleeping, taking a nap, and then maybe praying. All of a sudden, this vision came, and animals are being let down of all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, according to the Jews. And the voice from heaven says, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? Whatever you say, Lord, I'll... No, he said, no way, Lord. One translation says, by no means. You cannot say, by no means, and yes, Lord. And you cannot say, Lord, and no way. 
It's either yes or it's no. You cannot be selective and say, well, I'll, I'll eat these, but I won't eat these. I remember when I was pastoring in Oklahoma, a woman came to me, and, and I, I, I've done very little counseling in my uh, overall ministry. It wasn't my primary gift, but this was one of those situations uh, when she came to me, and, and normally I would have a policy of not talking uh, in a counseling role with a woman more than one time. But she came in and was attending our church, and she said, I have a problem. What is it? I'm in love with two men. And, and I love them both the same. And I said, that's impossible. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other. And I said, your problem is not that you are in love. The problem is you're in lust. And you need to hear from God. You need to get right with God, turn them over to the Lord, and then Seek the Lord. In other words, get, get right and get real. What did she do? She went out and married one of the guys, but continued the affair with the other one. And of course, that marriage did not last long. Nor did the other relationship, as is often the case. You cannot be selective in your obedience. But also, obedience is responsive. Whatever he says, you do. It's like with the little children. We used to say to our preschoolers, obey right away, all the way, with the right heart attitude. Because delayed obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is radical disobedience. And so... When you're responsive as a servant of the Lord, it's yes. Your yes is on the table for everything he says. In the Old Testament days and for centuries, uh, there were servants, obviously, who would serve their master, particularly in the palaces. And one person was in Egypt years and years and years ago, and he saw uh, in the palace of one of these wealthy Egyptian men uh, a banquet, and he, this, this visitor was at the banquet, and he noticed the servants were standing at the back of the room with their arms folded and their eyes constantly fixed on the master, the head of the family. All he did was nod, and they went to it. They knew what he wanted. And they watched his nod. The psalmist said the same thing in Psalm 123 too. As the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God, until he is gracious to us. You're looking to him. You are saying, Lord, you nod and I'll go. You speak, and I will do what you call me to do. That means we have to listen to that inner, gentle prompting of the voice of the Holy Spirit. Whatever he says. One of the things I realized years ago about obedience, I'm a pretty simple-minded guy. Janet would agree. <laughs> but And she's here, by the way. By the way, 
Thank you for loving our family. But anyway, my, my simplicity is this. The Lord just seemed to show me this one day. He said, you're, so, you're stressed out about how you're obeying me. Do the last thing I said and then do the next thing I say. It's pretty simple, isn't it? And you need to ask yourself, Lord, have I done the last thing? Now what do you want me to do after that? But why would he show you the next thing if you have not done the last thing? And then obedience has developed over time. Now I want to share some key words with you. Obedience is intentional. It is intentional. You deliberately choose to obey. Now, in John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, he said, We know that we know Him if we keep His commands. And the word keep there in the original language means to be watchful and cherishing something so much that you do whatever you need to do with it. His commands are so special, but there is an intentionality in choosing that obedience. And we may even struggle over it, but we choose to do it. Uh, I've had various challenges, as you know, over the last uh, four years, and uh, one of those was uh, dealing with COVID and uh, 58 days in the hospital and pneumonia, and then all the long-haul after-effects, and then two more times with COVID, and then uh, a little over a month ago, getting COVID and pneumonia again. Fortunately, very, very mild compared to the first time. Hit my vocal cords. You may not know it, but I am obeying God and trusting Him to be able to preach and speak right now. And something said to me, lay off preaching, rest your voice, but it was like God's call. I have called you to preach the Word. And I choose to obey that. But also obedience is intimate. And, uh, excuse me, let me go back. Intuitive. It's intentional and intuitive. And the more you are intentional in obeying, the more your character is formed and you just know the right thing to do. It's reflexive. It's second nature. You don't, you don't stop and say, well, is this right or is this wrong? No, you just do what God is, is moving you into. Because that intuitiveness is because there is an intimacy. Obedience is intimate. The word used for servants in John 2 is a household servant who was close to the family in relationship. Close to the family. And so the closer we are to the Lord, the more we uh, serve Him. And that's why, again, John, who wrote this, this gospel, when he used the word commandments or command, he did not use the same Greek word as the law and its commands. He used a word that spoke more of obeying out of relationship than legalism. Out of love, not rules. And not out of fear, but out of delight. And so we have this joy. It's not like, uh, 
ex, you know, extracting a bad tooth when you obey, but honey exuding from the comb. There's one other word. It's instructional. Obedience is instructional. God is teaching you when you obey other wonderful truths. But obedience is what unlocks the door. That's why Jesus said in John 7, 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it's of God. If you're willing to do, and then you do, you know. Psalm 143, 10. Teach me to do your will, oh my God. Teach me. Now, I wrote down things that God has used obedience in teaching me and the different ways he speaks. Let me just share a few with you. He may, and he has done this with me uh, uh, various times, he may be calling you into a relationship more than a task. A relationship more than a task or a job or a project. And it's my job to concentrate on the depth of my walk and his responsibility to expand the breadth of my influence. A relationship. And then also God works in obedience to see if I'm willing to do something and then he will tell me, no, you don't have to. But it's like Abraham offering Isaac up. That's where faith grows. And then another thing is uh, being called and to do a small assignment that fits me for a larger assignment later. And he often does that because they're stepping stones in character. It's intentional. And all of this is developed over time. Now, I'm going to be the choir director and you be the choir, okay? Are you ready? There are scriptures that talk about just the words, do it. Nod your head if you agree. All right, you're the choir, I'm the director. And uh, I'm going to give you the lead, and I'm going to read a verse, and when I give you the sign, you're going to say, do it. All right, I want you to say that with me. Do it. Just do it. Do it, okay? You ready? Scripture. Deuteronomy 6.3. You, you should listen and be careful to do it. 2 Samuel 3.18. Now then, for the Lord has spoken. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, enthusiastically is something done for the Lord and not for men. In other words, just do it. Here's one last and brief important principle. Whatever he says to you, do it, because Jesus intends the best outcome of your obedience. What did he do? He gave a sign which became a witness. This miracle was the first of his signs, John said. And then at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, John says these signs were given pointing to the fact that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that we might have life in his name. 
The sign became a witness, pointing to Jesus. He manifested his glory, the Bible says. But not all believed in him. Even his own brothers in his family, that is his half-brothers, Mary's kids by Joseph, they were there at the wedding. Many think Mary was related to the mother of the bride or the groom. I don't know. But his brothers did not believe in him. And they saw the sign, as did his disciples. He manifested that. It means he revealed his glory. And they still did not believe in him. And later in John chapter 7, it says, they did not believe in him. Not until his resurrection did they believe and become his disciples. The witness is here. He's given you a sign in many ways. I was driving through southern Ohio not long ago, and I saw a huge billboard. And it said, if you're waiting for a sign, this is it. God loves you. It's a billboard. God is saying, and loud and clear today, I love you. I want to bless you. Will you do whatever I say? And then, here's another thing. He performed a miracle which became a gift. All of a sudden, this couple had 180 gallons worth of wine. What a wedding gift. And it did them well, saw them through perhaps a tough time financially ahead to sell that wine. He, his problems that he allows in our lives are often his provisions for greater grace. And then he made a provision which became a principle. When he provided that wine, the, the head waiter came in and they, he tasted this new wine and he said, you have saved the best for last. He didn't know a miracle had occurred. He was just amazed when the palates were more dulled by the drinking, uh, they would give the, the cheap stuff later. But no, he said, you saved the best wine for now. The Lord always gives us the best. But Satan is the great imitator, and Satan tells us, if you want your best life now, you better do this and get that and have something else here. Bait and switch is what it is. You better, if you are not going to believe and follow Jesus, this is the best it will ever be. This life, you better live it up because once this life is over, hell is forever for eternity. And Satan will never tell you that. Oh, you're going to have the best. But remember what Bob Lilly said with the cowboys. Is that it? Really? This is what it's all about? But God saves the best for last. We may have struggles and problems and trials and sickness and betrayal and so many things in this life. But this isn't the end. Our sufferings, Paul said, are not worth anything compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. That's in heaven. The banquet feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb is awaiting us according to Revelation. And one last truth, he gave a command. 
which includes a promise. The flip side of every Bible command is the promise of power and grace to do it. When God says, just do it, in essence, he's saying, let's do it together. That's why Philippians 2.13 says, God is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so I want to ask you today, have you obeyed the gospel? You know that 12 times in the New Testament, it speaks of obeying the gospel. What does the Bible say? God commands us to do two things, repent and believe. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. Have you obeyed that? Are you willing to right now do what he is calling you to do? Would you bow your heads in prayer, please? The one looking around. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in just a moment. We're going to celebrate Christ's death for us. But believers, is there something God is telling you to do? Is there a ministry He's calling you to? Is there a particular point of obedience? Will you just say yes right now? And ask Him to give you a heart to walk in intentional obedience, intuitive, intimate and instructional obedience to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Peter said. If you're not a believer, you've never nailed down a time when you put your faith in Christ alone. Right now, I'm going to lead you in a very simple prayer. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit to draw you to himself. Oh, Lord, you, in your grace and mercy, have not only given us the offer of salvation, Lord, you will now help us to believe and repent. For by grace we're saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so if you do not know the Lord Jesus right now, I want you to pray this prayer if God has convicted you of sin, disobedience, a lifestyle of disobedience. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Thank you for dying for my sins and being raised from the dead for me. I turn my life over to you now. By your grace, I choose to turn from sin as I turn to you. Not only change my nature, but give me the assurance that I'm your child. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Now when the service is concluded, some of our prayer warriors and encouragers are going to come down, and you'll know them by their badge. And they will be willing to pray with you and talk to you. And if some of you prayed that prayer a moment ago, you need to share it with someone else. And some of you have a, an issue of obedience, 
and you need to pray with someone about what God is telling you to do, they're going to be here as well. Now I want you to take the Lord's Supper cup. It's an interesting cup. You peel it off. The bread is on the top, the juice is on the bottom. Unless we run through this important thing too, too quickly, let me read what the Scripture says. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul said, for I received from the Lord, that's Jesus, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup out also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we're going to do that in just a moment. But this is also really significant here. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So let's close our eyes and be still before the Lord right now. Let his spirit examine you. Do not take the cup and the bread unworthily. None of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. But do not Hold back anything from the Lord. Do not disobey Him right now. If there's something God is telling you to confess, ask His forgiveness and claim His cleansing and forgiveness. Yes, Lord. Now would you peel the top off and take the bread And eat this in remembrance of Christ giving his body on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord, for dying for my sins. Would you say that to him? Thank you, Lord for dying for my sins. Now would you take the cup as you flip it over and peel it off. Drink this in remembrance of him as he gave his blood for your sins. And we remember his death he comes. I'm going to ask one of our folks, Lee Gabriel, to lead us in prayer right now. Lee, are you here? Lee, back here. Would you please? And let's lead us in thanking the Lord for what he has done. Father, we are so thankful 
the life that you gave up, that we may have the life that we have now. You are precious in our sight, Heavenly Father. And we thank you now, Lord, that once again, each and every one of us are the vessels that you have now filled with your spirit, Almighty God. And then, Father, we are presented to the Father. Just like in the story he is saying, Lord, you have saved the best for last. Thank you, Lord. And that is us, Heavenly Father, in your sight. May we usher in your kingdom here on earth. May we usher in your presence in every village and every town across America and throughout the world. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power.